0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's presentation on gut health and mental health, the impact of the second brain. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and I will be leading you through this course. The disclaimer that is kind of required, this is for educational purposes only and not intended to replace medical advice. Always have clients discuss any nutritional changes or supplements with a registered dietitian or their primary care physician. Things that we might not think would be, you know, very consequential in terms of dietary changes can be very consequential for people depending on what medications they're taking and any underlying physiological issues they've got going on. So any sort of nutrition prescription has to come from a RD or an MD. Over the next hour, we're going to briefly review the findings from the research identifying the connection between the brain and the gut. If you go to PubMed and you type in um, uh, gut-brain axis, all in quotes, or leaky gut, all in quotes, you will come up with literally hundreds of peer-reviewed articles on this stuff. So there is a lot of information out there. We're only going to hit the very, very highlights. There is a lot more information that can potentially be used for prevention sort of activities if you have an RD on your staff, but we're not going to go there today. We're going to differentiate gut, gut health from proper nutrition. They're not the same thing. I've done several presentations on nutrition for mental health, and nutrition's important, but gut health is something completely different. We'll identify the signs and consequences of poor gut health, explore the bidirectional relationship between the brain and the gut, which they kind of call the second brain. And I'll jump ahead for that, and let you know that a lot of our neurotransmitters are actually synthesized in our gut, and the gut communicates with the brain through something called the vagus nerve. Therefore, they found that a lot of our mood states are actually initiated, if you will, by neurochemical changes in the brain. We'll get there. And we're going to identify some promising alternative approaches to treating mood and other mainly pain and um, autoimmune disorders depression is the leading cause of disability in the world according to the world health organization the effectiveness of the available antidepressant therapies is limited depending on which studies you look at it can be anywhere from 30 percent to 70 percent effectiveness that's still pretty broad but even on the best case say 70% of people have a good effect from the antidepressants, that means 30% still aren't. So we need to look and figure out why, what's going on. And a lot of it comes down to what I've usually referred to as effective differential diagnosis or trans diagnosis. Looking at, Sally comes into your office and she's got the symptom of fatigue. Okay, well, let's look at all the different things that could cause fatigue, Some of them have to do with poor gut health. Others have to do with hormone imbalances. There are a variety of things that could cause fatigue. So if you just throw an antidepressant at it, if it's not because of a serotonin imbalance, maybe she's got sleep apnea, then that SSRI isn't going to do a world of good. So we need to really look at the symptoms and what's causing them. What's the underlying pathophysiology? Data from the literature suggests that some subtypes of depression may be associated with chronic low-grade inflammation. We'll get there. Uncovering the role of intestinal microbiota, or the microbiome that exists in our intestine, in the development of the immune system and its bidirectional communication with the brain have led to growing interest on re- the reciprocal interactions between inflammation, the microbiota, or the microbes in your, in your gut, and depression. Gut microbiota appear to influence the development of emotional behavior, stress and pain modulation systems, and brain neurotransmitter systems. Now, I had said at the beginning that there's some really interesting, promising research for prevention. I'll give you a little heads up that a lot of our gut microbiome is actually formed at birth. As soon as... A child is born and the microbiomes in the guts of children who are born vaginally versus by cesarean via cesarean section are different so we know that even that one action or one activity can significantly alter the microbiome of the child the other thing that affects the microbiome of the child is whether the child receives breast milk or whether the child receives Formula because of some of the different undigestible particles and stuff in breast milk. We're not going to talk about that a lot today. However, our gut biome is really formed in the first three years of life. So, if we in help children get a good start, then we may be able to head off some of these behavioral disorders or at least mitigate them a little bit. Microbiota changes. Caused by illness, dietary changes, probiotics, and antibiotics impact the endocrine and the neuroendocrine pathways. So stuff that goes on down here, you know, when you take antibiotics, it can have all kinds of side effects. Well, that's disturbing or disrupting all of the microbes in your gut. And that has uh, reverberating consequences. So, think about your kids. I know when I was little, I had chronic ear infections. So, I was on antibiotics pretty much once a month for seemingly the majority of my young life. And this was before they realized that they were overprescribing. But those antibiotics can really mess with the intestinal balance of microbiota and let certain microbes flourish and other microbes die off. So, there's an imbalance. The brain can in turn alter micro. Microbial composition and behavior via the autonomic nervous system. So it's that top-down thing. Again, I I want you to think about when you're stressed. What happens to a lot of people when they're stressed? They get GI upset. And that GI upset is caused by the brain signaling, and we're going to talk about the pathway later, but the brain signaling through the vagus nerve that, you know, we need to fight or flee, we need to get going, cortisol goes up, yada, yada. Even mild stress, like preparing for an exam, can change the microbial balance in the gut, making the host more vulnerable to infectious disease and triggering a cascade of molecular reactions that feed back to the central nervous system. Think about when you've been stressed for some reason and how it's affected your gut and maybe your immunity as well as your mood. All of those things may be interrelated, they're finding. Exposure to chronic stress decreased the relative abundance of bacteriocide species and increased the clostridium species in the cecum and caused activation of the immune system. So they're hypothesizing that when those types of bacteria increase, that it may cause inflammation in the gut, and that inflammation in the gut can trigger an immune response. It also, stress also causes your gut to be more permeable which means bacteria and other stuff can leak, if you will, into the blood system. And we'll talk about leaky gut in a little bit. When that happens, when this stuff that's not supposed to be in your blood system gets in your blood system, your immune system activates. When your immune system activates, it causes inflammation. So now we see where we might be having problems. One study found that children with autism spectrum disorder treated with oral vancomycin, which is an antibiotic to reduce cholestridium, had significant improvement in behavioral, cognitive, and GI symptoms. So is this the be-all, end-all? Do we want to start prescribing vancomycin to everybody? No. However, it's interesting to note that there is a certain subset of people with autism spectrum disorder who do respond well to... This intervention, which may indicate that part of their issue, part of their behavioral issues or cognitive issues, may be due to bacterial disruption in the gut. Mm. Acute and chronic stress increase gastrointestinal and the blood-brain barrier permeability. So they call the increased permeability of the gastrointestinal system leaky gut, and they call the increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier leaky brain. Easy enough to remember. But when people are under acute and chronic stress, both of those walls, if you will, become more permeable. So inflammatory stuff and bacteria and whatever else can get in there easier, which can lead to other problems. So when we're under stress, mast cells are activated, which is what causes this increased permeability. Inflammation of the GI tract, whether it's because you've got salmonella and you've got a really upset tummy or you've got um, irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, whatever it is, inflammation of the GI tract places stress on the microbiome through the release of cytokinines, um, which are inflammatory cells and neurotransmitters. Coupled with the increase in intestinal, intestinal permeability, these molecules then travel systematically. So you, you have these inflammatory cytokines going through the, through the gut into the blood system and traveling systemically. You also have neurotransmitters going into the blood system and getting up to the brain, where the brain's more permeable. So it's being bathed in certain neurotransmitters, which are generally more stress inducing neurotransmitters. Your gut's not sending out out the all calm. It's sending out the something's wrong down here. Elevated blood levels of cytokines TNF and MCP increases the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, enhancing the effect of rogue molecules from the permeable gut. Their release influences brain function, leading to anxiety, depression, and memory loss. Now, we don't know, obviously. We can't say it's causative, but we can say that there's a really strong stinking correlation between stress, GI inflammation, and mood symptoms. I was talking about the vagus nerve earlier. The vagus nerve is one of the biggest nerves connecting your gut and your brain. It sends signals bidirectionally. In mice, and this is a really cool experiment. Obviously, they couldn't do it in humans. In mice, it was found that feeding the mice a probiotic, which is something with the good bacteria in it, like yogurt or kefir or sauerkraut, reduce the amount of cortisol in their blood. And we know that cortisol is our stress hormone. When our cortisol is high, it suppresses serotonin. So if you reduce cortisol, then theoretically you may see an increase in serotonin. So anyway, I digress. When the mice, mice's vagus nerve was cut and they were given a probiotic, it had no effect. Their cortisol levels remained the same. Therefore, the extrapolation was that some sort of message from the vagus nerve going up to the brain was saying, there's a problem here. Or in this case, when they got probiotics, it was going up to the brain going, everything's good. We've got plenty of of soldiers down here. Life is good right now. But then when that was cut, the brain couldn't communicate, so it was kind of in limbo land. Alterations in the gut microbial community have been implicated in multiple host diseases such as obesity, diabetes, inflammation, and recent evidence suggests a potential role of the microbiota gut-brain axis in neuropsychiatric disorders such as depression and anxiety they're finding a lot of connections, is basically the short version. Disruption in the gut has a lot of consequences. Research has found that tweaking the balance of gut bacteria can alter an animal's brain chemistry and lead it to become either more bold or more anxious or more depressed. So small tweaks in the gut can have effects. Now, while we're talking about microbiota and and probiotics and all that kind of stuff i do want to caution that just like anything else too much can be a bad thing there is one bacteria called c difficile um, that if it gets way overgrown people can actually have life-threatening diarrhea and need to have what's called a stool transplant in order to get the bacteria reestablished in their colon So you don't want to overdo it on anything. If you've ever, you know, eaten too much yogurt, decided that you were just going to eat yogurt for a week and that's all you were going to eat, you probably noticed that your stomach behaved a little bit differently because all of a sudden there was an overabundance of probably five or seven different types of microbes, but your gut has over 100 different types of microbes. So those, you know, five or seven types were just all over the place and crowding everybody else out, which can also lead to problems. So it's all about balance and paying attention to your symptoms, how you feel physically as well as emotionally. A healthy gut absorbs nutrients sufficiently to support brain health. So nutrition is important. We need to give the body the building blocks it needs to make the neurotransmitters and the hormones and everything else. That's true. But if you eat a really healthy diet and you don't have the microbes down there to break it down so it can be absorbed, then it's no good. If, you know, if food passes out whole, you probably didn't get any benefit from it, which means your brain is not getting the building blocks it needs to make the stuff it needs for you to be happy and healthy. A healthy gut prevents bacteria and inflammation causing agents to leak into into the bloodstream. When you think about the cells in the colon, think about them like, remember when we used to play Red Rover? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, and you'd all hold hands and try to keep people from breaking through. When people are under stress, those connections become weaker. So it's easier for people to, or not people, for bacteria, to break through that gut wall and get into the bloodstream. So a healthy gut, that doesn't happen a stressed-out gut or an unhealthy gut, that can happen. A healthy gut can adequately produce neurotransmitters. Gut bacteria manufacture about 95% of the body's supply of serotonin. We do know that serotonin is not the only neurotransmitter involved in happiness. Serotonin is good for regulating anxiety. It has been known as a calming chemical, and it has been known in many cases to help with depression. However, norepinephrine is also involved in depression. Dopamine is also involved in depression. So we don't want to just assume that if we fix this serotonin thing, if we increase the amount of serotonin in the gut, that people are gonna be happy. I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. Our neurotransmitters are like making a good marinara sauce. All the spices that go in there have to be in a certain balance. And if one spice is too much, then it's going to affect how well you can taste the others. If one neurotransmitter is too high or too low, then it's going to affect the ability of the other ones to function, to do their job. It's about this balance. And most people's bodies, not everybody's, but most people's bodies, if they have a healthy environment, will maintain that balance. There are some exceptions, obviously, those that have some organic brain dysfunction. But for the most part, if the body and brain are healthy, then they will naturally balance out on their own. So here are a bunch of names that you may or may not have, have heard before. If you eat a lot of yogurt and or kefir, then you may be more familiar. Lactobacillus and bifidobacterium synthesize GABA from monosodium glutamate. Now, I always thought monosodium glutamate was bad for you. Evidently, not so much. It helps make GABA, which is our internal volume. It's our natural volume that we have. Lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are both found in a lot of yogurts. So that's good. Those are easily accessible. Another one, E. coli. This is the one we hear about all the time that lettuce is infested with E. coli and so we can't eat lettuce and this and that. We have E. coli in our gut. We don't want a lot of it, but we have some in our gut and it's essential because it can help produce norepinephrine along with a couple of other bacteria. Candida, that's another one that gets a bad rap in... health blogs and those sorts of things because an overgrowth of candida can cause a host of problems, including autoimmune-type symptoms, leaky gut, a lot of things. But we need some of it. Streptococcus, yes, strep bacteria, the stuff that makes you just terribly ill if you get a head cold with it or whatever, strep throat. It's needed, and Asheria and Enterococcus All four of those work to produce serotonin. Who knew that strep bacteria and candida could work to produce serotonin? And bacillus and serratia produce dopamine. All of this is happening in our gut. Now dopamine is our pleasure chemical. Serotonin is a calming chemical antidepressant. Norepinephrine is our concentration, motivation, get up and go, happy chemical. And GABA is our internal natural volume. So if our gut is not able to make those and you know we don't know exactly how much is synthesized in the gut and how much is synthesized in the brain because there's no effective way to monitor where it's coming from in humans. They extrapolate from, from rat studies and stuff. But we know that if part of the system is offline, then we're probably going to have some level of imbalance. It sounds like a lot of funky terms, but there are really only a few that you need to remember, and and we're going to go over those a little bit more, again, as we get later into the presentation. But I did want you to see the fact that some of these things that we think of as harmful, you know, we're always disinfecting our hands and everything, can be actually helpful in small quantities. There is a hypothesis, and it's called the old friend's hypothesis, that some scientists have put out that indicates you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we didn't have nearly the level of autoimmune disorders, nearly the level of allergies that we have today. And they're extrapolating or speculating that part of that may be because we have oversanitized ourselves and some of the bacteria we need to be able to respond to histamines, things that cause inflammation, we don't have anymore because we've over-disinfected ourselves. Mucosal 5-HT, if you think about um, 5-HTP, you can buy it in the grocery store. I'm not recommending that because you can very easily overdose and cause serotonin syndrome and other things. But 5-HTP or 5-HT is a serotonin precursor. It's broken down to make serotonin and plays a direct role in the regulation of intestinal permeability. If our serotonin's low, that means our gut's leaky. If our serotonin is good, then our gut should be, you know, people are in the Red Rover line, they're holding, holding hands a lot tighter, and they're able to keep the invaders out. Norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin are able to regulate and control not only blood flow, but also affect gut motility, so it can give you constipation or diarrhea, nutrient absorption, partly because if stuff's leaking out and there's inflammation, you're not going to absorb as much, but partly because if you have really bad diarrhea, you're not gonna absorb as much. It affects the gastrointestinal innate immune system, so if you get a tummy bug, that, that immune system evidently was not operating too well, And these neurotransmitters also affect the microbiome. So too much or too little of any of these can affect the livelihood, if you will, of the microbiota in your gut. I've talked about it a little bit up till now, but you may still be going, what is leaky gut? I've heard about it. I've seen it. On, on the news, but I'm not sure. Leaky gut is when the cells lining your gut are not stuck together as tightly as they could be, allowing proteins, viruses, bacteria, and more to leak out of the gastrointestinal tract and into the bloodstream. Now, just think about that. It kind of makes me go, ew, well, that's what your body does. And so it sends out the immune system. Leaky gut syndrome is often described as an increase in the permeability of the intestinal mucosa because you have the intestinal wall, which is kind of like skin. You know, you see people pull out, doctors pull out people's intestines on TV. But inside there, there is a mucus covering. Not to get too gross, but it is, and it protects, and it kind of lubricates everything. So when that mucosa starts to break down, then the intest- and the intestinal wall becomes more permeable because the a- mast cells are activated, then all this stuff Toxic digestive metabolites, bacterial toxins, etc., start leaking into the bloodstream. Lipopolysaccharide is an inflammatory toxin made by certain bacteria. So in the process of digestion, just like in the process of combustion and everything else, there are going to be some bad, icky products made, waste products, which normally just kind of go out. In leaky gut, it can... Go into the bloodstream. That's not what we want. TNF alpha is the inflammatory cytokinine also made in the gut, which has been linked with depression and reduction in serotonin production. Inflammation and high lipopolysaccharide in the blood have been associated with a number of brain disorders, including severe depression, dementia, and schizophrenia. There was one study, I think we'll get to it later, that assessed people who had a recent suicide attempt, and they found that in their blood, the markers for inflammation were significantly higher in those who had attempted suicide and those who ranked their suicide as more severe. These inflammatory molecules and toxins increase inflammation, which trigger the HPA axis. So they get out, the immune system goes, oh my gosh, there's invaders attacks, inc- increases inflammation, that triggers the HPA axis, which is your threat response system, to go, ooh, there's a problem. The immune system is working overtime. We need to do something. We know when the HPA axis is activated, what's one of the first things it does? It lets out cortisol. Cortisol is our one of our fight-or-flight things and um, causes us to have increased heart rate, all that kind of stuff. But cortisol also indicates stress. And what do we know about stress? It indica- it increases gastrointestinal and blood-brain barrier permeability. So now the cortisol's in there and things are becoming more permeable. Stuff is leaking out. The, the immune system's trying to catch up. HPA axis keeps going. By secreting cortisol, it's actually worsening the problem in some ways, so it's almost a self-perpetuating cycle. The other thing to remember is that when cortisol is in your system, high levels of cortisol suppress serotonin because it's fight or flight. It's not time to chill out. So your body's going, no, we don't need the relaxed neurochemical. But it also suppresses sex hormones because this is also not the time to be procreating. We know that serotonin availability is partly regulated by the availability of estrogen or testosterone. So when estrogen and testosterone are suppressed, we know that serotonin is probably going to be suppressed. When cortisol is high, we know that serotonin is going to be suppressed. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. And when serotonin is suppressed, what do we know? In addition to the mast cells making that gut leaky, Serotonin or lack of serotonin is going to make that gut more leaky because the 5-HT in the intestinal mucosa starts to break down. When inflammatory agents leak into the bloodstream, it increases the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, letting potential inflammatory molecules into the brain, which can cause depression, cognitive dysfunction, foggy head, all that stuff. Inflammation is associated with major depressive disorder and suicidal behavior. Those, This is the study I was telling you about. Those with major depression and a recent suicide attempt had higher levels of gut permeability markers. So let's compare these a little bit because we're, we've been talking about some things that seem related, maybe, and I talked about differential diagnosis and transdiagnostic stuff at the beginning of class. Mood disorders, autoimmune disorders, and leaky gut. They're not the same things, but they have a lot of the same symptoms. The ones that are in bold are are, um, common to all three of these things. So fatigue is common to all three of these things. Sleep issues are common to all three of the things. And several places um, I read indicated that sleep Changes in autoimmune disorders are not just because of this discomfort caused by the autoimmune disorder. The autoimmune disorder itself actually can impair people's ability to sleep. Difficulty concentrating, true in mood disorders, autoimmune disorders, as well as leaky gut. You've got all those inflammatory things going into your brain and all those toxins, and it's kind of like when smog hits a city. Think about it that way. You can't see very well. GI disturbances, achiness and pain, and sugar carb cravings are physiological symptoms. They're not in the DSM-5. I wish they were, but they're not. If you go to a primary care physician and they are assessing you for depression or whatever, they're going to ask about these things because the co-occurrence of GI disturbances with mood disorders is super duper high. When people are clinically depressed, it can actually hurt. And there was a commercial, golly, three, four, five years ago, about, you know, it had this little animated figure that was talking about how her depression actually made her hurt. And when your serotonin is low, your pain perception goes up. Serotonin plays a role in pain mediation. So when your serotonin is low, your pain tolerance is low. When your serotonin is high, your pain tolerance may be a little bit higher. So it actually can make you feel achier. Autoimmune diseases, we know in many autoimmune diseases, there's an element of pain and achiness from fibromyalgia to Crohn's disease, yada, yada. Leaky gut can cause symptoms of arthritis and joint pain. These are all things. And what causes pain? Pain is generally caused by inflammation. You see a common thread here? And sugar and carb cravings. When people are depressed, sometimes they crave sugar and carbs or and or high fat foods. Why? Because when you eat sugar and carbs, it often causes an increase in serotonin and an increase in dopamine. So it helps them feel better in the short term. When people have leaky gut, sometimes they crave sugar and carbs because of a candida overgrowth. And that candida overgrowth, remember I said we need candida in small amounts, but if we have an overgrowth, then it can lead to the breakdown of that intestinal mucosa and leaky gut. So what do we do about it? I think we've established that it's a problem. What do we do about it? Psychobiotics are live organisms that when ingested may produce health benefits in patients suffering from mood disorders, autoimmune disorders, those sorts of things. They have started, there's been a huge trend lately in pills, if you will. It's lots of different psychobiotics out there on the market to increase your, your bacterial count and improve the health of your colon and yada, yada. Again, I would refer to a registered dietitian or a primary care. However, the research that I read makes me believe that there's enough statistical and clinical evidence that this is a good adjunct for a lot of people that I would argue that I think it's in our clients' best interest a lot of times for us to advocate for them to, with their physician to consider some alternate... Nutritional approaches, or at least consider this now. Western medicine, even though the research is out there, and like I said, there are hundreds of articles on leaky gut and the gut brain access that indicate that it exists and it's real and all that. But old school AMA Med medical doctors are still kind of on the fence about whether leaky gut exists or not, just like they were on the fence for. 10 years or more about fibromyalgia. Therefore, we may need to provide research articles. We may need to help advocate if the patient thinks that this might be something in their best interest in order to help them get some good advice on what they should take. Should they just eat yogurt or sauerkraut, or do they need to take a pill? And if they do, how does that interact with any other medications or physical conditions they have? So, again, It can get really hairy there, which is why the uh, other people need to make the nutritional prescription, but we can educate patients that this might be an avenue to discuss with their doctor. In a study of 124 healthy volunteers, this is a really good sample size, a mean age of 61 years, those who consumed a mix of specific psychobiotics, specifically Lactobacillus helveticus and Bifobacterium longum exhibited less anxiety and depression. If you go online to Amazon or Walmart or wherever and you look for the mood support psychobiotics, guess what you'll find? Generally, these two bacteria and then some others. Children with ADHD were substantially improved on either an AFC-free diet, so getting rid of some of the Chemicals or by dietary supplementations with polyunsaturated fat fatty acids iron and zinc Nutrition again is really important in you know, you got to feed the little buggers if If you've ever made kefir I make kefir and I started out when I ordered it. It was Two teaspoons. I think it was just this little tiny bit of these little kefir grains and I was supposed to put it in a gallon of milk and expect it to do something Well, lo and behold, it did. And in the two years that since I began with that starter culture, I've ended up with probably eight cups of kefir grains. They grow, they multiply. They are actually living organisms. Um, And kefir kefir grains are things that you use to ferment the milk to make kefir. But we'll get there in a few minutes. My point being, we need to make sure that we're feeding those bugabugas because they are alive and reproducing, and they're good things. Probiotics and psychobiotics are the same thing. They just kind of go by different names. Most people probably wouldn't take them if they read psychobiotic at CVS or something, but probiotics are the inclusion of any of your um, bifidobacterium, lactobacillus, all that kind of stuff nutrition activates hormonal neurotransmitter and signaling pathways in the gut that modulate brain functions like appetite sleep energy intake reward mechanisms cognitive function and mood think about it after you eat you're starving and you go in there and you eat and as soon as that food gets past the stomach into the small intestine you know that 20 minute time period or whatever all of a sudden you start to feel full and then your brain sorry sends out the signal hey You're full. You don't need to eat anymore. So it's communicating there about how much you need. It's communicating about what's yummy to eat. You eat something that's high in sugar and carbs, you're going to get a rush of dopamine. And before they discovered the gut-brain axis, they thought that was something happening in the brain. Now they're starting to speculate that when the sugars and stuff get down into the gut, that the serotonin and dopamine and stuff are... um, sort of mass-produced, if you will. Even if the person is eating healthfully, if the bacteria are not there to break down the nutrients to make the neurotransmitters, they're going to continue to have mood symptoms. In a study of older adults, I I found this study fascinating. It was found that healthy nutrition can reduce the incidence of depression from 40 to 50%. So what does that mean about our older adults and their nutrition and... But what does that also mean about the ability for us to help people reverse it by, through education about the importance of nutrition? Again, we're not prescribing. We're just educating them about this is something you need to learn about and maybe consult another professional. Healthy foods such as olive oil, fish, fruit, vegetables, nuts, legumes, poultry, dairy, and unprocessed meats. And when we say unprocessed, no nitrates, nitrates, no hormones, steroid-free it's hard to find that a lot of times uh, you can get any of your lunch meats and hot dogs and stuff have nitrates and nitrites in them, but most of the meat that you buy in the grocery store has some level of hormones or steroids in them. The unprocessed meats are much better if you can get naturally grass fed beef. Those foods have been inversely associated with depression risk, so they found that those foods, which you know are not necessarily unpalatable, are not highly processed, obviously, and are better at feeding the gut microbiota. Magnesium, calcium, iron, and zinc are inversely associated with depression, and I meant to put that infographic in here, and I forgot, obviously, but all of these minerals and and vitamins are associated with and and needed to break down tryptophan to make 5-HT, to make serotonin if you don't have these vitamins and minerals and b6 is in there too if you don't have these then the body can't effectively break down tryptophan to make serotonin chromium leads to a secondary synthesis of serotonin norepinephrine and melatonin and have been associated with reductions in depression remember with a lot of minerals and certain vitamins they are fat-soluble and you can reach toxic levels really easily. So again, we don't want people going out and just randomly picking vitamins and minerals off the shelf and going, oh, well, that's supposed to help with depression. I'll take a megadose. That could be really dangerous. Vitamin C was found to have an equivalent effect to amitriptyline. Amitriptyline is a really intense antidepressant. And they found that vitamin C was found to have an equivalent effect now, that was a lot of vitamin C. However, the point being made that if you don't have vitamin C, then it can contribute to depression potentially. Folate, B12, and B6 combine to enhance cognitive performance and reduces the risk of depression. They are also involved in the breakdown of or the manufacture of serotonin and melatonin. Vitamin D is associated with reduced depression. We have a lot of vitamin D receptors in the same places in our brain that we have serotonin receptors. And they speculate that vitamin D is involved a lot in depression prevention. And calcium and copper are also important. Again, this is more nutrition than gut health, but it is important to make sure that the guts, that, that the um, bacteria in the guts, have the tools they need to break down the little proteins to make the chemicals that they want. So think of all these vitamins and minerals as tools for the bacteria to construct the neurotransmitters and the hormones and all that kind of stuff. Several medications, including metformin, which is a diabetic medication, and gram-negative antibiotics, showed a certain potential to treat depression. You've got gram-positive bacteria and gram-negative bacteria. If somebody takes gram-negative antibiotics, in theory, it's only killing the gram-negative bacteria. Well, that's all well and good, but what happens if they do that is it's really easy to throw that system out of whack, and you have a proliferation of gram-positive bacteria, which is, again, also bad. Prebiotics result in lower cortisol levels and improved attention to positive stimuli. So, what are prebiotics? Probiotics and psychobiotics generally the same thing. We're talking about the lactobacillus and that sort of stuff. Prebiotics are fiber, you know, that you get from fresh fruits, from whole grains, those sorts of things, as well as lactose. And they're characterizing that even, even though lactose is technically a sugar. They're characterizing lactose as a prebiotic, and they've found that it's important to feeding that gut bacteria. And yes, we have people who are lactose intolerant. Well, let's think about that. What might be causing that? They probably don't have the bacteria in their gut to break down lactose. Lactobacillus acidophilus induced the expression of the cannabinoid 2 and mu opioid 1 receptors in the colonic epithelium. Well, that was a bunch of garbledy gook. What's the point? Lactobacillus acidophilus is one of the main bacteria that you'll find in just about any yogurt. It increases the expression of the cannabinoid 2, cannabis, receptors. Oh, that's interesting. When those cannabis cannabinoid receptors are activated, it increases the tightness of the gut wall. It reduces gut permeability. So some articles have started to look, and there hasn't been any conclusive research that I found, but some articles have started to look at whether ingesting CBD oil, um, cannabinoid-based oils, can help reduce gut permeability. The mu-opioid receptors are your pain receptors. When you take the acidophilus, theoretically, you may be reducing pain in the gut and potentially reducing inflammation. Lactobacillus farsiminis inhibits stress-induced visceral hypersensitivity. This may be one of those bacteria that is helpful before somebody goes through some sort of a stressful situation, whether it's giving a speech or taking a test, visiting the in-laws, whatever it is. Lactobacillus helviticus is a type of lactic acid bacteria that's naturally found in the gut. It's also found naturally in foods like Italian and Swiss cheeses. I won't say no to cheese ever. Uh, so Parmesan, cheddar, those types of cheeses. Milk, it's even in milk. Kefir is a ferm- fermented milk product. It's something between a loose yogurt. Uh, that's kind of where I would put it. It, It's sort of the consistency of a loose yogurt with a little bit of almost fizz to it. It has a unique taste. It takes a minute to get used to. You can get kefir in a lot of different flavors. You can get a lot of these different fermented foods like sauerkraut and kefir and stuff at the grocery store. But, and here's the big but, the pasteurization and high heat sterilization processes that these foods go through in packing, make the commercially processed foods almost non-existent in terms of having uh, any of these good bacteria in them. So it's better if you can make it at home. Kefir is really easy to make at home. Buttermilk is really easy to make at home. Other fermented foods like kombucha, kimchi, pickles, olives, and sauerkraut Sauerkraut and kimchi are easy to make at home. Kombucha is a little bit more difficult, but you can people can find recipes online if they want to start experimenting with eating some more fermented foods. Ingestion of lactobacillus KCI shirota and lactobacillus and B. longum reduced anxiety and depressive symptoms and cortisol levels. So they keep finding in mice and in humans that the ingestion of the bifidobacteria and the lactobacillus reduces cortisol levels, which theoretically allows serotonin levels to increase. Elevated hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, or your HPA axis response, and depression can be reversed in rats by administering a single bacterium, the bifidobacterium infantis. We don't know exactly exactly, they haven't. I didn't find any studies where they took this one particular bacteria and administered it to humans. Now, GF rats. These are germ-free rats. These are rats who were born by Mousy cesarean section, who were always in a sterile environment, never had any sort of um, breast milk or anything. So they don't have any bacteria in their colon at all. And when they took these germ-free rats and they fed them this Bifobacterium infantis, they found that the HPA axis response was was lowered. But everything works in combination. So are we going to see the same result in humans that have over a 100 different types of bacteria in their colon? I don't know. To increase bifidobacteria, take probiotics, especially lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. Obviously, This is not something we're going to tell our patients to do, but this is something that they may end up doing um, in the course of their their treatment, and this is something that we can encourage them to discuss with their physician or their nutritionist. Eat high-fiber foods such as apples, artichokes, blueberries, almonds, and pistachios to feed the good bacteria. Eat prebiotic foods, which are, remember, those carbs that help the healthy bacteria grow. Onions raw or sauteed garlic raw or sauteed bananas and interestingly enough chicory root now chicory root has an important place in my heart at least because it is naturally decaffeinated it has no caffeine in it but back when in whatever it was the 1800s i'm not good with history when we couldn't get coffee over here we Switched to using chicory root as a coffee substitute and the french still largely use chicory root as a coffee substitute Chicory root is much lower in acid than coffee. So it doesn't erode your enamel, which is a bonus Chicory root is naturally decaffeinated So it doesn't have to go through any sort of decaffeinating process where people might be exposed to toxins or the food might be exposed to toxins Um, and by having something that is 100% naturally decaffeinated, you're not getting any caffeine, you're not stimulating that HPA axis because remember, caffeine is a stimulant. So it's going to trigger that HPA axis to rev up a little bit, which that can be considered low-grade chronic stress, which can increase blood-brain barrier and gut permeability and start causing all kinds of inflammation and other mood issues. So chicory root, really cool. It's something that... You can take a look at, you can order it, you know, ground just like coffee. I brew it in the coffee maker just like I make coffee. And I have no complaints. Once I got used to it, I really don't want to go back. Eat polyphenols from foods such as cocoa, green tea, and red wine. Polyphenols are those chemicals that are supposed to help you protect against aging and get rid of free radicals and all that stuff. You're looking for... Fruits and vegetables that are rich in color. You're looking for fruits and vegetables that are dark cocoa, red wine, grapes, and green tea is just naturally super high in polyphenols. Eat whole grains such as oats and barley. Now, obviously, somebody who is gluten intolerant may not be able to handle oat or barley gluten either. Some people, they, the only gluten they have issue with is wheat gluten. Some people, it's wheat and corn. Some people, it's every type of gluten. So it, it's up to the person and, and their physician what they do, what they eat to feed that bacteria and create that hospitable environment. Eat fermented foods such as yogurt and kimchi and exercise. They found that exercise actually increases the health of the intestinal system. So how does anxiety or depression perpetuate itself via the gut-brain axis? When people are anxious, it's kind of that top-down thing. The vagus nerve tells the gut there's a problem. The HPA axis gets set off, so cortisol is released. That releases adrenaline and your fight-or-flight chemicals, so everything starts going faster, which means your gut's going to go faster too. The anxiety and depression increases Increases the stress levels, the cortisol levels in your body, which increases the permeability of the blood brain barrier and the GI tract, which can lead to leaky gut, inflammation, and even more HPA axis response, which can lead to more inflammation. And we know that inflammation is associated with mood issues. How do gut disorders like IBS or Crohn's impact mood? IBS and Crohn's are inflammations of the gut. So when the gut's inflamed, it's not happy and it can become more permeable. But when it's not happy, it's sending a signal to the vagus nerve that something's not good here. When we are in pain, whether it's our gut or somewhere else, our body perceives it as a stressor because we are now the weaker animal in the pack. So our body's HPA axis kicks off again. So, gut disorders like IBS and Crohn's, because of the pain and other things, can. Increase intestinal permeability and contribute to depression. Autoimmune disorders also cause, by their very definition, cause inflammation, which can contribute to depression and anxiety in and of themselves. Now, autoimmune disorders can also contribute to depression and anxiety because of the actual pain, because of the limitations and the grieving process, because somebody comes to terms with the fact they have a chronic disease. There are a lot of contributing factors. We can help with some of the disability management factors, but it is important for people to recognize that autoimmune disorders and the inflammation caused by the autoimmune disorder can increase their depression and anxiety, which is another reason for them to really do everything they can to keep that autoimmune disorder in check. And how does HPA axis dysregulation contribute to leaky gut? Well, we've kind of gone over that like 16 times. HPA axis goes up, cortisol goes up, serotonin goes down, gut becomes leaky, blood-brain barrier and gut become more permeable, and your inflammatory cytokines and other toxins are able to permeate into the brain and cause inflammation throughout the body. So all of these things can be problematic. Somebody with PTSD who has one of their symptoms is hypervigilance. Well, guess what? They have chronic low-grade stress most of the time. That's part and parcel of the definition of hypervigilance is constantly being sort of revved up and on alert. So they may have some gut dysfunction, which may be hampering or at least not helping, their recovery from the PTSD as well as any other mood disorders. The takeaway message, like we've said a bunch of times in the presentation, we can't prescribe, we can't diagnose. However, we can be aware and we can educate our clients about the importance of gut health, about the importance of proper nutrition, and advocate For them and encourage them to talk to their physician and advocate for them as needed to maybe help get their doctor on board to at least considering the fact that there may be some nutritional aspects to what's going on as well alrighty I wasn't able to read everything as we yes encouraging them to look into information further encouraging clients to look into information further can make a difference in their quality of life it empowers them One of the things I will do, and I'm really careful when I'm giving clients information to refer them to only peer-reviewed articles. I don't want to just refer them to anything that Jim Bob wrote on the web necessarily. But I do give them places so they're going to the best sources. They're going to reliable sources to get the information. So I do preview a lot of the information that I give to my clients ahead of time Obviously, they can expand from there what they're reading and what they're looking into and you know, that's on them That's totally cool, but I want to make sure that they've at least got a foundation of good quality accurate knowledge to begin with I'll warn you Melissa getting the kefir grains. They're expensive to get but they're super easy I mean, you know, I can kill a house plant and I do really well with kefir Um, and I find it to be yummy I can, you know, you can put different extracts in it and stuff. I typically don't put honey in it because honey is antibacterial and it seems counterintuitive to put an antibacterial into something that you're trying to increase the bacterial load in, but some people do. Um, Cinnamon's really good in it, vanilla, yeah, one of my favorite things. And kefir can be made with goat milk or cow's milk. So for people who have the ability to drink goat milk but not cow milk. Alrighty, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. Now, Thursday, we're going to start talking about serotonin in depth, what it does, why it's important, and how we can help clients make sure that their body system is running in a way that their body can maximize its serotonin. We're not going to talk about supplements to increase it or, or psychotropics so much as we're going to focus on healthy, holistic ways Alrighty everybody have a great day and I'll see you. Oh, actually it's tomorrow, isn't it? <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's all slash podcast CEUs.